Um, In his book, The Quest for Character, Chuck Swindoll tells the story of this, this very old, grand mansion in Scotland, and, and I mean old in the European sense of that word, old. This story takes place back in the mid-1800s, uh, when that mansion was already hundreds and hundreds of years old, and one great room in this mansion had just been redone, restored, and right after it was completed, a, a container, a jug of tonic water actually was spilled down one wall and it left this giant gray stain on this freshly restored room. Be, before the, the wall could be re-restored, the family had as, its, as a house guest the renowned British painter Sir Edwin Landseer, and while Sir Edwin Landseer was staying with them, the family had to be gone for a day, and so Sir Edwin took to that wall with a piece of charcoal, and he made that that ugly gray stain the outline of a waterfall, and then he made that waterfall the centerpiece of a landscape, and he drew trees and animals and whatnot around it. And by the time the family returned, their ugly stain was a master's depiction of the Scottish countryside. They never got rid of it. They suddenly were very proud of what a master had done with their ugly stain. Well, listen, Our God is a way better artist than Sir Edwin Landseer. Our God has has the power and the gentle creative touch to take the ugliest stains in our lives, whether it's something someone spilled onto us or something we seem to ruin ourselves. God can take those things and turn them into his masterpieces. Things we can somehow strangely be happy are there because they show what a master our Lord is. He does require us, though, to let him be in charge of the redecorating. Last week, we began 1 Samuel chapter 30, and in those verses, we learned of an episode in the life of David that was a terribly ugly gray state. David and his men had just gotten themselves out, it seemed, of of an extremely tight place uh, at a place called Jezreel. They marched three days home, so happy to be out of the tight spot they had been in. They were ready to revel in some rest with their families, but they got to their then home of 16 months, a place called uh, 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 Ziklag, thank you, Jezreel, Ziklag, thank you, Ziklag, 
And they found Ziklag burned to the ground and all of their families kidnapped or at least gone and all their stuff was destroyed or taken. They were understandably just crushed. To make matters worse, David's men, many of them blamed David for the situation they were in and that argument had some merit. But we learned last week that David strengthened himself or he drew strength from the Lord his God. And we stopped right there last week to talk about what that might mean and how we might be able to in some way replicate strengthening ourselves in the Lord when the rug gets pulled out from under us before we know how our situation might play itself out. David did that last week. So where we pick up this morning as we move on in that story, David has strengthened himself in the Lord. And we're going to see what it looks like when someone is strong in the Lord, even though their their situation hasn't been fixed. David has inquired of the Lord. He's been told to pursue the Amalekites that destroyed his home and kidnapped him and his men's families. And then we're going to see what happens next. We're going to read the rest of this chapter. We're going to read through it a, a, a smaller chunk at a time and, and pause and, and talk through it a little bit at a time as, as we go. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, we pick up in verse 9 where we read this. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 of his men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. And we'll pause for the first time right there. So in verse 9, David has, for the first time in a long time, he has inquired of the Lord. Ask the Lord, God, what do you think I should do? And the Lord has answered. And so David has set off, as God told him, in pursuit of the Amalekites and in pursuit of their own loved ones. All 600 of his men are with him at beginning, at the beginning, and they march as far as some landmark, some creek, some river called the Brook or the Wadi Basor. And there, we're told that a third of David's men, 200 men, are too exhausted to go any further, to cross. I don't know if this is a ravine or how hard this would have been, but 200 men just sort of fall out and say, we can't go any further. I want to give you a little bit of context here, lest we think less of these men who stay behind than maybe we should. David's hometown is now is Ziklag. And in the previous story, David and his men had to leave Ziklag and march three days to Jezreel to join the Philistine army. They were very quickly dispatched and sent back home. So they've just marched three more days back to get to Ziklag. When they get there, they find it destroyed, their families kidnapped, and now they take off and they march what I'm told is another 12 to 15 miles to get to this spot. Uh, the Amalekites who kidnapped their families and destroyed their town couldn't have left them 
an overabundance of supplies, these men have to be somewhat rationing their food. They, they're tired. They've been marching, so three, six, seven days. And quite literally, 200 of these guys just cannot continue. So David leaves those 200 men behind. We're going to learn later. He and the 400 that continue on in the pursuit, they lighten their load. They leave some of their equipment with these 200 men and they continue on their pursuit. Now, there's another problem with David's pursuit of the Amalekites and that's he doesn't know where they are. God has told him you will overtake him. But he doesn't know where they are. Maybe they can see tracks. I don't know if they're like Tonto or what, but they, they, they know, seem to know a general direction of where to head. But they, David's force has been shrunk by a third. They're exhausted, even the ones who can continue, and they don't know where their enemy is. Not a great situation. Let's move on. Verse 11. Now they found an Egyptian in the field, and they brought him to David, and gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate, and he ate, and then his spirit revived. For this Egyptian had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And then David said to him, will you bring me down to this band of Amalekites? And the young man said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. So, David was told by God up in verse 8 that he should pursue the Amalekites. He was promised by God he would overtake the Amalekites. But God didn't give him an address. But verse 11 starts with these words. Now they found an Egyptian. They just happened to find an Egyptian. David and his men, they're in a hurry. They don't know exactly where they're going, but time is of the essence. And they just happened to run across this Egyptian man who seems to have been near death. And when David is brought this Egyptian, he has no way of knowing this Egyptian can help him. Now, I assume, because he doesn't know where he's going, David would ask about anyone if they've seen any Amalekites in the area and which way do they go. But to me, it sure seems like uh, David goes out of his way to help this guy. David, I do know, David has once again found his strength in the Lord. David is back pursuing after the Lord's heart as hard as he is pursuing after the Amalekites, and David slows his pursuit to be kind to someone who could have really used some kindness. This man, we learn, 
was with the very Amalekites that burned Ziklag to the ground and kidnapped everyone. But the, the Amalekites, they rely on speed. And once this man got sick and threatened to slow down the Amalekites as they try to escape, he just gets discarded. David does the exact opposite. David slows down their pursuit to, to help this man. David could have held a sword to this guy's throat and said, if you've seen the Amalekites, you better tell me where they are. But David, pursuing God's heart, is kind. Maybe more kind than some of his men would have thought necessary. And isn't it interesting that David receives what he needs from God when David shows kindness to someone else in need. Don't press this too hard and try to learn a lesson that the Bible doesn't teach and that we don't believe here. I, you'll never hear me teach you, teach you that if we are good, if we are kind, God will make sure everything works out for us because that's not true by a long shot. Tragic things happen to people who are generally kind and people who are generally mean at approximately the same rates. But, but, how often might God give us something we could really use, something we need if we would just be kind to someone else? How often when I need my spirits lifted, might God allow me to feel that if I were kind to someone else? Instead of sitting and counting the days since someone else has done something good for me, might God encourage me if I would just do something out of my way that would be kind for someone else? How often might we really get more of what we want if we are just consistently kind servants of other people? Didn't Paul tell us that Jesus said it really is more blessed to give than to receive? Like not just better, like it brings more blessing. It's better for us. And here's something else hidden, tucked in this part of this passage, I think. Could anybody have blamed David if he just decided to stay home and sit down in the dirt and just cry? I mean, if you think about what David has just gone through, I think we would all agree that's about as bad as it gets. Imagine this. If this were you, this is what would have just happened. If you, wherever you live, whichever one of our local communities you live in, Let's say you've been gone for six days. You get home and Imperial has been burned to the ground. All of your loved ones have been kidnapped. Everyone else's who has survived, their loved ones have been kidnapped. And everyone blames you for the situation. And they might be right. It might legit be your fault. That's a bad day. I couldn't blame David if David just sat down and said, you know what? I give. I can't go on anymore. 
But David would have missed out on what God was ready to do if David is willing to get up and keep pursuing what God wants to do, even through his dark gray stain, even through an unthinkably hard situation. When we, when we, are, we find ourselves in those rug pull situations that are incredibly hard and painful, you'll never hear me say something like, what are you doing being all sad? God wouldn't want you to feel like that. Like that kind of stuff is just so bogus. Like the pain's not real. But when we can somehow, again, not through strength of our own, God allows things into our lives we can't handle. But when we somehow, borrowing His strength, strengthening ourselves in the Lord, when we can move on from that mental and emotional space that keeps saying over and over again, I can't do this. Why could God let this happen? Where is God when I need Him? I've ruined everything. There's no sense in trying anymore. When we can somehow move on from that into a space like, I I wonder, I don't know how God is going to redeem this situation, but I wonder how He will. I don't know how God can take this terrible gray stain and make anything worth looking at, but I'm willing to wait to see. How could God possibly make something beautiful out of a mess like this that hurts this bad? When we are able to move into emotional territory like that, do you think we'll see more of God's grace and more of God's power and more of God's beauty than if we stay stuck in the dust where no one can blame us for being? Yeah. We better keep going. In verses 16 through 19, we're going to read of how how David's kindness toward this Egyptian leads to God's kindness toward David and his men. Verse 16, um, when he, that's the Egyptian, brought David down, behold, the Amalekites were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So that is how David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves, David brought it all back. Excuse me, sorry about that. When, when David, with the help of this Egyptian, locates the Amalekites, they're spread all over the place. They're spread way too thin from a military point of view. And they're also crocked, 
celebrating the great haul they have had marauding around the countryside. Apparently, these Amalekites knew of the Philistine plan to attack Israel and thought, hey, what a great opportunity. And they started attacking these towns that were abandoned of their men who went off to war. They're celebrating, they're drunk, they're spread too thin. David and his men are like, we know what to do with an opportunity like this. And they attack, they rout. This, this, has, a, this has a very George Washington attacking drunk Hessians on Christmas morning sort of feel to it, if you know that story from the American Revolution. They rout the Amalekites, they rescue every person and every bit of stuff that had been seized. Now from a plot standpoint, everything else we're going to read in the chapter is just about what happens to the stuff that they recovered. Verse 20. So David had captured all the sheep and all the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and and they said, this is David's spoil. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Besor, And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except to every man, his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Verse 23, then David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, the Lord who has kept us and delivered into our hands the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that David made a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. By the way, just as a quick side note, uh, this idea that, that men who go and fight and men who play support roles in the military get r- close to the same wage is still alive today in militaries who are worth their salt. The Bible really is the foundation of Western society. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Uh, you want to know why the Russians couldn't march in and just defeat the Ukrainians? Because they don't play, pay people like manage their vehicles, change oil, and stuff like that. Uh, this is not just biblical, it's also smart. End of uh, rabbit trail. So again, like I said, the rest of this book is just about what happened to all this stuff they captured. They got not only their own stuff back, but they captured All of the stuff these Amalekites had stolen from village after village after village after village from the Philistines and from fellow Israelites. And now David has it. What he does with it is important. First notice in verse 20 that once again David is seen as the unquestioned leader of this group. Hasn't been that way for long. A few verses ago, half his men wanted to kill him. They blamed him for the situation they were in. Now everyone tips their cap to David. 
He's the man again, right? David is once again, he's pursuing the Lord's heart. He's inquiring of the Lord. He has gotten their marching orders from God. He's leading bravely. He's led the men well. And everyone says, this is all due to David. Like it was David's idea to stop and basically help a hitchhiker on the side of the road. Half of us thought he was an idiot for slowing down to help that guy. That turned to solid gold. So everyone tips their cap to David, so much so that all of the stuff that gets taken, they say belongs to David. David's such a good guy, he'll be fair with it, he'll do the right thing. That sentiment doesn't even last till they get home. By verse 21, on their way back to Ziklag, they come to that ravine, that, that creek, that whatever it was, where they left 200 of their compadres behind. And we're told that David went out and greeted them. Uh, The Hebrew lets us know that sort of greeting is a very warm greeting. David's very warm toward toward these men he's left behind. And the rest of his men don't like it. They know where this is headed. And so before David can say anything else, verse 22 the, the men who did go to David to fight say, hey, because those guys didn't go with us to fight, we're not going to give them any of the spoil we recovered. Let them have their wives and their kids and send them packing. That kind of seems like it makes sense, doesn't it? Does that sound reasonable? Only the guys who fight should get the spoils from the fight? Would you call that reasonable? Look what God calls it. God calls it wicked and worthless. That's our author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice, here's the wicked and worthless part. It's the shift in these men between verse 20 in verse 22. Whose stuff was, was it in verse 20? All this stuff is David's stuff. But it's only David's stuff as long as David will do with it what I want David to do with it. Because whose stuff is it in verse 22 actually to these men? Because they did not go with us. We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. It's not David's stuff anymore, is it? It's ours. We won this. But David's going to answer them and tell them whose stuff it really is, and it's not theirs, and it's not David's. Verse 23, David says, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. The Lord who has kept us and delivered into our hands the band that came against us. Here's what David is saying. First, I want you to notice David's very gentle here, even when he disagrees with his friends. You guys are wrong. You're wicked and worthless. But David doesn't call them that. David calls them my brothers. But David reminds them gently that the Lord is the one who has won the day. If David were more sarcastic, like I am, here's what David would have said. 
whoa, whoa, whoa. The loot you guys recovered? Do you guys think, do you think you are responsible for the victory that just happened? I mean, I know you ran in there screaming with your sword drawn and stuff. But was it, was it your idea for that Egyptian to get sick? Was it your idea for the Amalekites to cast him aside along the way we were just going to happen to travel down later? Did you keep that sick man alive with no food or water for three days until we got there? Did you spread the Amalekites out way too thin and get them all liquored up before we got there? Because make no mistake, that's why we won. God did that stuff. We just got to charge in with our swords drawn and, and at the end, after God had done all the work. It's the Lord's stuff. We better treat this stuff as if it belongs to the one who won the day, which is the Lord and not us. Can we be like that? Can we be like, can we be like these wicked and worthless men? Only like all the time if we're not real careful. It's not that God is, is okay with just sort of freeloading and people figuring out how not to work and make other people fit the bill. That's not what I mean. But anytime we look at what we have, anytime we spend so much of our energy collecting more and more of God's stuff. We run the risk of, of maybe God looking down and saying, man, that seems wicked and worthless. We're on that in a minute. We'll move on. When David gets back to Ziklag, he shares with the nation. Verse 26, now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, and those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, of the Negev and to those who were in Jatir, and those who were in Aror, and those who were in Sifmoth, and those who were in uh, Eshtemoa, and those who were in Rakal, and those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites, and those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and those who were in Hormah, and those who were in Bor Ashan, and those who were in Athach, and those who were in Hebron, and, and to all those places where David himself and his men were accustomed to going, David sent some of the loot back to share with these guys. What's going on here? Well, one, there may be a little politicking going on here. David is about to be king of these people. And if they support him, so much the better. But there's a definite contrast between the future king of Israel and the present king of Israel. King Saul, the only king Israel's ever known, was always about Saul. Saul was the guy, do you remember, during his second military campaign, 
told his army that they couldn't eat until after they won. And Saul said this, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, before I get my vengeance on my enemies. That's like Saul's slogan. Saul was always about self-advancement, self-promotion, self-glorification, right? So Saul tended to be a collector of all of those things. And David shared all those things. What's the difference? All David thinks he's doing is sharing with God's people, God's stuff, that God won from God's enemies to God's glory. Saul tends to look at what can I get out of this for me? And David looks at the same kind of stuff and says, look what God has done for God. You think people, the people will in general be happier to have David as a king than Saul? They will. And they won't have to wait long. That's our passage. Aside from the things we've already learned, what do we learn? First, this passage teaches that godly responses to awful situations can bring beautiful results. Godly responses to awful situations can bring beautiful results. Or to put it another way, God can use our stains if we respond correctly. David had experienced an incredible tragedy. He just sought his strength in the Lord rather than the improvement of his situations. He discerned what the Lord would have him do. He got busy doing those things obediently. He refused to be destroyed though he had been struck down and he cried till he couldn't cry anymore. And then because of his response, he got to see God win an incredible victory. This reminds me of an old story. There's an old English writer named Somerset Maughan. And he tells the story of a man who was a janitor at, uh, at a church in London. Um, and he was illiterate. Couldn't read, couldn't write. That was actually a requirement to have that job he had to be able to read the scriptures. Somehow he faked it and, and got this job that he, he really needed. Until one day a young vicar discovered that this guy was illiterate and he fired him on the spot. And suddenly he was illiterate and jobless in London in the late 1700s, I think. So what he did, he collected his what little bit of money he could scrap together and he opened a little shop. And it did well. And so he opened another shop and it did well. And on and on and on he expanded till he, he uh, owned a whole string of shops and he came to be worth several hundred thousand pounds, which was a fortune in that day. He came to uh, befriend uh, his banker, which I think happens when you're worth a lot of money. I don't know. But his banker, who would have to read all of his contracts and stuff for him, one day told him, like, you are like a wonder. Like, you are, you've done so well for yourself. He said, man, just think of where you would be. Where do you think you'd be if you could read and write? And the guy said, 
I think I'd be the janitor of that church down there in Neville Square. Godly responses. When we are going through an awful situation, we have no way of knowing where it will lead, but we know it won't lead anywhere good if we don't go. Godly responses to awful situations can bring beautiful results. Family, the Lord promised there'd be lots of pain in this life. We don't have any choice there. We don't. But we do have a choice not to just stay embittered by the pain. We do have a choice not to just get stuck looking at every negative thing around us and convincing ourselves that's the reason I feel like I feel. When eventually the reason I feel like I feel is my inability and refusal to move out of that spot to strengthen myself in the Lord instead of staying right here until he fixes some of this and especially that person and the way things are around here. God can use our stains if we'll let him be the decorator and the general contractor. He can glorify himself and do something beautiful even in my tragedy. Godly responses to awful situations can bring beautiful results. Second, this passage is a reminder that generosity is a sign that one is pursuing God's heart. You can see this in David. Prior to this story, before David strengthened himself in the Lord and changed directions in his life, David got stuck in a season of his life, seeing what he could collect by any means necessary. That's what he was doing in chapter 27. And then he learned that all that stuff can be taken away in an instant. Why do we spend so much of our lives collecting that which one day absolutely will be worthless? Now, I want to be fair, David, was, David received from God a whole lot of loot, and it wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong that God gave to David lots of cattle and sheep and camels and who, know what, who knows what all else, right? Uh, one of our favorite sayings is, God doesn't mind when his people have stuff. God hates it when stuff has his people. David understood when he got all that stuff, like his forefather Abraham understood, I've been blessed to be a blessing. Instead of having an attitude of, if I work hard, what can I acquire? A better attitude might be this one. Through my hard work, what might God give and why might he give it to me? God wants me to work hard. When I do, I may. He wants me to be financially responsible. It's biblical. 
And when things go well in the financial aspect of my life, I better add this last part of the question. Why has he given what he has given? Because it was just as much him when it happens to me as it was him when when God got the Amalekites all spread out and drunk. When I get um, a boon through hard work and self-discipline and not giving up, Who gave me that work ethic, that self-discipline? Who allowed me to be born in a place where I can pursue such things? I could have been born in a place where no matter how hard I work, everyone gets paid the same amount. The Apostle Paul would later say it this way, a thousand years later, 1 Corinthians 4, For who concedes you any superiority? What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? Folks, we're not running a capital campaign. I am not asking for any money. The finances of this church are really great. Thank you, Lord. So I... I don't care that you give more money to this church. I really don't. And honestly, I won't know if, if you do. But I care about your heart. I don't want to try to use this message to convince you, oh, I better start giving more money away. No. Generosity is not the way you pursue God's heart. But generosity is a sign that you are. If you tend, if you take stock of your, uh, your accounts, if you tend to be pretty tight-fisted with your stuff that you have, I would ask you to consider how hard you're pursuing after the one who gave you all that stuff. Because a lack of generosity isn't a problem. It's only a symptom of a worse problem. And remember last week we saw... God sometimes allows terrible things to happen to convince us in His grace to push us toward what we actually need, which is to pursue Him. So generosity is a sign that one is pursuing God's heart. And then the last thing, I think this story is a great example of how we simply can't save ourselves. Like David, um, we have made a mess of our lives it wasn't the Amalekites that came and destroyed everything, uh, but our sin sure threatens to. And like David, we have no ability to save ourselves from our greatest enemies. Sin, death, ruin. The only thing we can do is strengthen ourselves in the Lord, accept the rescue He offered through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, And then see what he will do to his glory through our gray, ugly stains. Let's pray. Our beautiful Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, um, you have reminded us, God, that our responses when you allow the rug to be pulled out from under us can bring beautiful, beautiful results. 
You have reminded us that if we are pursuing after you, we will be more open-handed with the temporary stuff of this world, which someday will be worth nothing. But what we do with what you have given can have eternal results. God, help us to be generous, not because uh, we feel somehow coerced into being generous, but because we pursue your heart. And when we begin to find it, we realize it is all that we need. God, thank you that we had no ability to save ourselves from our great enemies. So you have done it for us. God, help us to see our pain, our opportunities, our finances, and our gray stains through your eyes toward your glory. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together with us and let's finish.